You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Killnet threatens a hack-and-leak operation against the maker of HIMARS. Online investment scams hit Europe. Microsoft associates Raspberry Robin with Evil Corp. Rick Howard previews Season 10 of the CSO Perspectives podcast. Our guest is Nate Carl of Spectrust on deploying fraud detection at the Gateway. And a heartfelt farewell to a woman whose inspiration lives on. the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, August 1st, 2022. The HIMARS rocket artillery system the U.S. has provided Ukraine apparently has aroused some concern in the Russian command. There have been reports of apparent provocations in which Russia has blamed some of its own strikes on wayward Ukrainian HIMARS rockets. At the very least, Russian refusal to allow international Red Cross inspectors into a prison camp that Russia claims was hit by a HIMARS suggests a guilty mind, one with something to conceal. There have also been claims, so far unsubstantiated, that Russia had developed a cyber weapon that's capable of disrupting HIMARS in some unspecified fashion, perhaps through interference with its fire direction system. One action in cyberspace is aimed, if it actually comes off, at Lockheed Martin, the U.S. defense and aerospace giant that produces HIMARS. Killnet, a nominally hacktivist threat actor aligned with and in all likelihood controlled by the Russian government, says it's going to strike a blow against Lockheed Martin on humanitarian grounds, needless to say. The Kremlin media mouthpiece Sputnik tells the story from the side of the Killnet. The Kremlin outlet quotes Kill Milk, the group's leader, stating, Starting today, defense industry corporation Lockheed Martin will be a target of my cyber attacks. I am against weapons. I am against merchants of death. Newsweek quotes another statement by the group. As Killnet puts it, the notorious HIMARS multiple launch rocket system supplied to Ukraine by the aforementioned Military Industrial Corporation allow the criminal authorities of the Kyiv regime to kill civilians, destroy the infrastructure and social facilities of the still temporarily occupied Ukraine. Killnet has been talking their campaign up for some time. On July 22nd, the group said, We are using a new type of attack. We have no equal in this area. This is a new technology that we are using for the first time against the world's largest arms manufacturer, Lockheed Martin. 
Sputnik says the operation will be a hack-and-leak campaign, and the KillNet has invited other groups to participate, so it's to be a crowdsourced effort if KillNet is to be believed. To stay with KillNet for just a moment, the group may be undergoing a reorganization, or at least a change in leadership. SC Magazine reports that the threat actor's founder and leader, known by his hacker name KillMilk, has said he intends to leave KillNet to form a new group. He'll be succeeded by someone with the unlikely hacker name Blackside. Blackside is said to be the administrator of a criminal special access forum hosted on tour. He's supposed to be a specialist in ransomware, phishing, and theft from European cryptocurrency exchanges. Kill Milk's departure is said to be connected to his group's threatened campaign against Lockheed Martin, but observers are skeptical that Kill Milk, even assuming he's a natural person and not an office somewhere in the Russian organs, is motivated by any selfless desire to spare his colleagues the wrath of law enforcement. Kill Milk does say he's actively recruiting members for his new group, so we shall see. A complex and ambitious investment scam has used more than 10,000 domains to induce speculators to give up not just funds, but personal information as well. Researchers at Group IB describe the campaign as one that proceeds through several distinct stages. It begins with ads placed on social media or with pages displayed in compromised Facebook or YouTube accounts. The Come On invites prospects to learn more about an investment opportunity enticing them with bogus celebrity endorsements and, always a warning sign, promises of guaranteed returns. Should the prospect click through to learn more, they find that for an initial investment of roughly $255, U.S. they'll receive a personal investment counselor who will guide them through the process. And they'll also receive a dashboard they can use to track their investment's progress, which itself feeds them inducements to invest more. Group IB writes, The main goal of these fake investment schemes is to convince the victims to repeatedly transfer funds to the fake investment portal. The victims are usually promised huge returns on their investments and are shown how-I-got-rich stories featuring celebrities. The campaign's success depends on volume. The mix of online social engineering and live phone scamming is a distinctive mark of an otherwise conventional con job. At the end of last week, Microsoft updated its research, originally published on May 9th of this year, on Raspberry Robin. Microsoft researchers also observed that fake updates malware was being delivered through existing Raspberry Robin infestations. On July 26, 2022, Microsoft researchers discovered the fake updates malware being delivered via existing Raspberry Robin infections. The Microsoft 365 Defender Threat Intelligence Team and the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center also looked at the payloads the group delivered and saw a significant pattern, and it points to Evil Corp. The researchers say these payloads have, in numerous instances, led to custom Cobalt Strike loaders attributed to DEV0243. DEV0243 falls under activities tracked by the cyber intelligence industry as Evil Corp. The custom Cobalt Strike loaders are similar to those seen in publicly documented Blister malware's inner payloads. In DEV0243's initial partnerships with DEV0206, the group deployed a custom ransomware payload known as Wasted Locker 
and then expanded to additional DEV 0243 ransomware payloads developed in-house, such as Phoenix Locker and Macaw. The group seems to have used Lockbit 2.0 as misdirection, buying the ransomware-as-a-service tool to conceal Evil Corp's presence. The researchers state, Around November 2021, DEV 0243, that is Evil Corp, started to deploy the Lockbit 2.0 ransomware-as-a-service payload in their intrusions. The use of a ransomware-as-a-service payload by the Evil Corp activity group is likely an attempt by DEV0243 to avoid attribution to their group, which could discourage payment due to their sanctioned status. Bleeping Computer explains why sanctions drive the misdirection, stating, After being sanctioned by the U.S. government in 2019, ransomware negotiation firms refused to facilitate ransom payments for organizations hit by Evil Corp ransomware attacks to avoid facing legal action or fines from the U.S. Treasury Department. Using other groups' malware also allows Evil Corp to distance themselves from known tooling to allow their victims to pay ransoms without facing risks associated with violating OFAC regulations. The Australian Federal Police announced late last week that they'd charged a Brisbane man, Jacob Wayne John Keane, 24 years young, with creating the imminent monitor remote access Trojan, and selling it to those who wish to use its camera hacking and keylogging functionality as stalkerware. Mr. Keene allegedly sold Imminent Monitor for $35 a pop in an underworld market. His secret, like the secret of the hoods currently running the investment scam in Europe, was volume. The Australian Federal Police say he sold it to more than 14,500 people, pulling in somewhere between $300,000 and $400,000. Many of his clients are thought to have been domestic abusers. Mr. Keene got his start early. The police say he started offering the code at the tender age of 15. We'd say, boy, boy, you'll break your mother's heart, except, alas, in this case, the Australian Federal Police think Mom was in on it with him, which is just kind of sad. And finally, we note in sadness that another star has fallen from the firmament of the original Star Trek series. Nichelle Nichols, who played the Enterprise Communications Officer Lieutenant Uhura, passed away Saturday at the age of 89. Well remembered by all who visited the Starship Bridge via television, Ms. Nichols will be missed, as all who've gone where no one has gone before are. So hail and farewell, Nichelle Nichols, and if we may address you by your creation's name, Lieutenant Uhuru, Greet Bones, Scotty, and Spock for us. Rest in peace. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A 
com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Lately, security and fraud prevention teams have been seeing value in deploying tools at the gateway, out at the edge of an organization's online infrastructure. IT folks have had access to these capabilities for a while now, but it's newer for fraud prevention teams, and that reality brings with it a number of interesting challenges. Nate Carl is co-founder and CEO of fraud prevention security firm Spectrust. Uh, and generally, when you think about how people look for fraud in an application, these are things that have built over coming out of a finance concern. So it's in the back office. They're looking at a stack of login requests or account signups or payments uh, and then looking for, for bad activity. Uh, what that means is that for the people who are looking for bad actors who are on their platform, they only get the data that is given to them by the experienced teams. It's usually not a lot and their ability to drive feedback in, it's pretty terrible. As opposed to in the security world where you are out at the gateway, so you can think about your web application firewalls uh, you know, and your, uh, your DDoS uh, protection, that's out there at the edge collecting 100% of the information, keeping what's relevant, uh, you know, and then obviously dropping the rest. Fraud teams never have access to that, meaning that they don't have all the information they need to make those decisions, and they don't have a great information sharing uh, bridge to go between themselves and security teams because there's a lot of really great potential for collaboration. So when we talk about deploying at the gateway, we t we're really talking about deploying fraud detection and prevention the same way that security solutions uh, are deployed today. And why don't the fraud teams have access to that type of uh, information that security teams have grown accustomed to? They're generally not technical, right? Uh, for a growing business, their first fraud manager might be somebody inside of customer service. Uh, so for them, getting access to this type of technology, they, they often don't know to ask for it. Um, and even in larger enterprises, their fraud team may be a finance concern, it may be a legal concern, it may be, you know, roll up to the business unit. It's a rarity that we find a fraud team that rolls up to the, the CISO. Uh, and as a result, the type of solutions, the sophistication of those solutions uh, has been, you know, lagged behind uh, how security uh, solutions typically roll the market. 
So what does this look like you know, from a practical point of view, somebody looking to deploy something like this? How does it work? So the way that these type of solutions work is they will deploy out similarly to the way that a CDN might or a web application firewall. The main difference is they're going to be looking at layer seven traffic and stitching that together into a stateful representation of what a single digital identity did on the property over a longer period of time. So instead of looking at packets uh, or instead of you know looking at a you know, maybe a single uh, request at layer seven, it's about stitching that together from end to end and being able to trigger workflows and automations off of that. Um, why that's big for security teams is like now their fraud teams have a way to really kind of build that bridge between, hey, you know, the security team may be specifically watching, you know, post requests to an application looking for bots or you know, credential stuffing attacks. But now the fraud team can see the on-platform behavior, look for things that have happened uh, where they're trying to abuse the platform, you know, abuse the application, and then feed that back into the security team as an upstream. Today, fraud teams largely don't consider their security teams an upstream when they just clearly are. Yeah, it strikes me that there's really uh, an opportunity here for a lot of potential collaboration. It's it's crazy. Like there is uh, so much that goes into where a security team might be making decisions, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of decisions a day on who to allow access to like these critical piece of these like consumer facing applications. Uh, and none of that trickles downstream as the, you know, the people on the fraud teams are trying to build risk assessments for digital identities. And none of what actually happens, like the actual loss, you know, streams upstream, which I think security teams that, uh, you know, that we've talked to love that because oftentimes it's hard to justify ROI for security investments. But, you know, the, your fraud team sits so close to the money it makes it really, really easy for you to like really understand the impact of your investments and be able to communicate that to get the buy-in you need inside of your uh, your organization. Now, if you're intermingling the fraud component and the security component, are there any concerns there in terms of privacy? From a fraud and security component, no. Most of the carve-outs that you'll see in things like GDPR or CCPA for the, the purposes of cybersecurity uh, apply to fraud exactly the same way. Um, mm. So in terms of being able to move that across, most uh, fraud solutions will actually work with pseudo-anonymized uh, digital identities. Uh, mm. So you won't necessarily be looking at customer PII, you'll be looking at a tokenized uh, version of that. Is there a cultural component here as well of you know, establishing trust between these two established teams? What we have seen is it really comes down to the leadership on the security end of the house. Um, hmm. The security end of the house, typically, uh, they can decide if account security is inside their remit or not. And some of them say no. Some of them's like, hey, if we're shipping good code and if we have addressed major vulnerabilities and you know the application doesn't allow unsecure access, uh, you know, then we've done our job. If people abuse the uh, that then that's fraud concern. Uh, where we have seen uh, CISO step in and just show a lot of leadership around no, like no, we're going to keep the entire customer experience secure. You know, become the the yes people of yes, you can work with saved payment instruments. Like yes, you can allow, uh, you know, one click checkout. Yes, you can move into these you know, these new areas. That has really unlocked a bunch. Fraud teams typically aren't going to 
fight more engagement from CISOs because what they lack is engineering support. They lack technical support, um, which security teams typically have uh, you know, consistently more than uh, than fraud teams do. Uh, and then it really just becomes like a one plus one equals three type situation. That's Nate Carl from SpecTrust. And it is always my pleasure to welcome back to the show Rick Howard. He is the CyberWire's chief security officer and also our chief analyst. Rick, great to have you back. Hey, Dave. So if you are on the show today, that means one thing. It means we've started (laughs) another season of CSO Perspectives. I have to say I can hardly wait to see what you have in store for us. Yeah, you, uh, you can't get away from me, Dave. We come back like a bad rash. Okay, that's me. There you go. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so season 10 starts today, and we have uh, an entire rack of cool and interesting things to talk about from uh, the fintech ecosystem, privilege escalation, crisis planning, and a whole thing on risk forecasting. So I'm really looking forward to that. But today we're talking to the folks over at Miter Ingenuity, but two new and free tools, and you know, I love free, uh, that they released uh, this year in 2022, designed mm. to make working with the MITRE ATT&CK framework easier. Well, I, I have to admit, I'm glad you're talking about this, Rick, because you know, sometimes uh, when I tune into your segments, uh, <laughs> I find myself saying, yes, Rick, we all yeah. know how great the MITRE ATT&CK framework is. <laughs> but you know what? I, I, I mean, if you look into it, you're absolutely right. Uh, there is great information in there. But also, I think, I mean, is it fair to say that it's not for the casual user, that it can be hard to use? I think that's absolutely true. And by the way, Dave, I get that same reaction from my family. So you're not the only one. Okay. <laughs> right, right. So uh, these new tools from Miter Ingenuity were tailor-made for people like you who are kind of casual users, right? One is mm. called Miter's Powered Suit. It's a Chrome browser extension that when you're reading the cyber news items of the day, like from the CyberWire or from some latest um you know, report from a security vendor, you can easily look up the tactics, techniques, and procedures associated with it uh, without having to go back and forth and doing deep dives from the MITRE wiki. So kind of streamlines that entire operation. And nice. I use it every day now. It's, it's really good, so I highly recommend it. The other is called the MITRE Attack Flow, and this is a really interesting idea. It's a visualization tool that allows you to map the latest attack sequence, say, from Panda Bear, you know, in a, visual, in a visually pleasing way. And then you can also layer in the detection and prevention controls your organization has in place to counter those attacks. So um, I'm looking forward to playing with that a little bit more. Well, that is over on the pro side of the CyberWire house, over on the subscription side. Uh, On the publicly available side, you've also been releasing some of the older CSOP episodes, uh, classic episodes, for folks who are not not already pro subscribers. That's right. That's right. Uh, They're not reruns. They're classics. No, no, they're classics. If you haven't heard it, it's new to you. Uh, So these episodes are from last year. What can people look forward to there? So that podcast is called CSO Perspectives Public, and you can search for it wherever you get your podcasts. And it's free with ads. And this archive episode is all about how to orchestrate the security stack on your various data islands. So like we said before, if you're trying to stop Panda Bear from running around your networks, 
How do you make sure that your anti-panda bear security controls are consistent in your data center, in your cloud deployments, in your SaaS services, and on your mobile devices? So we'll give that a run and see what we come up with. All right. Sounds like good stuff. Uh, before I let you go, the other podcast you work on is called Word Notes, and these are little five-minute deep dives into some of the words that pop up in the news. What is this week's word? In this week's show, we're talking about pseudo-ransomware. I didn't even know it was a thing until we put the show together, right? So we'll give you a little definition, a little history, and a little nerd reference from the 2008 movie The Dark Knight. So it doesn't get any better than that. Okay, firing on all cylinders. Uh, Rick Howard, he is the host of CSO Perspectives that is part of CyberWire Pro. You can check that out on our website, thecyberwire.com. Rick, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dave. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast, where I contribute to a regular segment called Security. Huh? I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfand, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. <laughs>